I mean, it's just don't touch my debit card, man. Not not while I'm lifting. That's like <laughs> you're a big guy. You know, I mean, you're you're putting up numbers, like yeah. rip fuel numbers, not debit card numbers. Oh, that's but, definitely yeah, true. <laughs> but yeah, I wouldn't lift your debit, not while you're lifting. Look, man, I'm stoic. But I'm also brolic, you know, just I'm not trying to get in a fight. Who steals a debit card anyway? And house keys, like with mm. no address attached. Like, what? Mm. why? Where's it going to go? Did the gym do anything for you? Like, you're an elite customer. No, they didn't. They were no. kind of, they were on some like, yeah, sorry, you know, and gave me some like bullshit excuse. I think it's going to be time to upgrade. I'm an adult. We're recording now, by the way. All right, cool. <sighs> wow. Wow. You, uh, you ready? Yeah, yeah. Namaste. Go ahead. <laughs> you're listening to Public Announcement. I'm James Ellis. And I'm Chris Black. We're back, baby. <laughs> America's premium general interest podcast returns. This week, our guest is writer Lizzie Goodman, who joins us from her house upstate. High Falls, New York. To discuss her book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, which is the talk of the town. And it's also a very premium product, as the book was uh, six years in the making. Have you ever worked anything for six years? Like, not not actual work, like a, a personal project. I mean, making records takes a, an incredible amount of time, you know, often years. But not six. No. Lizzie's book is the oral history of the early aughts, um, New York City rock scene. Half the voices included are musicians. Uh, the rest are writers, uh, publicists, and, you know, just people that were, like, around and involved in that world. And, of course, it touches and covers all of the big names, the Strokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The White Stripes. Interpol. LC sound system. Yeah, I think that is it. I mean, all the big names. Everyone's in the book. And the gossip is very strong, which I know you appreciate. Yes, I do. Uh, so juicy. I think my personal favorite is this Brian Adams story, which I'm going to dramatically read right now. I should mention, while this is an old Brian Adams stroke story, it's actually still unfolding here in 2017. Still unfolding, like, currently unfolding. Like happening now. Could happen more as we as we move <laughs> forward in this life. I don't have a Brian Adams voice, but just imagine, you know, this is him talking, you know. Uh, one night I was hanging with the Strokes guys and Ryan Gentles, uh, the Strokes manager, we were really stoned because we were basically always smoking pot. Uh, it was very late, and Fab would always play me a song that he had written, some beautiful, like, romantic song. So one night, jokingly, I'm almost certain, Fabby said, dude, what if John Mayer was playing that guitar right now? And I said, I can make that happen. <laughs> now, I've lived down the block from John Mayer, and he's been talking to me about his new song for a while, so I texted him because he was always up late back then, and I said, come to this apartment, bring an acoustic guitar, I really want to hear your new song. I didn't tell them that I'd done that. So everyone is sitting there and I was like, let's all take bong hits. Bong hits. Let's <laughs> all take bong hits. I really wanted to get crazy. So we smoked some bong hits. Who says that? Who says <laughs> we smoked some bong Ryan hits? Ryan Adams does, you know. I probably did some blow. He definitely did some blow. Sure. The doorbell buzzer rings. And I open the door. <laughs> John Mayer walks in with his fucking acoustic guitar, and they were all slack-a-jawed. John sat down and played the fucking acoustic guitar. Three or four songs that probably have gone to be huge, while those guys just sat there staring at me like, oh my god, you're a witch. <laughs> what a fucking story. It's got everything. It's got drugs. It's got John Mayer. Bong hits. Yeah, it's perfect, dude. It's Anyway, back to the book. I really like how it opens uh, with Jonathan Fire Eater, which is kind of for the real heads. Because... Jonathan Fire Eater did not make it. No, that. No, but they uh, what a name, though. Uh, yeah, very strong. I mean, and, and Fire Eater, 
uh, is spelled with an asterisk between fire and eater. That's very important. I love that. But, you know, we, we should start with a song of theirs. The Shape of Things That Never Came, I think, would set the tone. Yeah, I, I like that, though. Uh, start the pod with a little audio history. New Rock. You're listening to Public Announcement. I'm James Ellis. And I'm Chris Black. Lizzie starts the book with the Jonathan Fireder story to situate the reader in terms of the late 90s uh, rock scene. They're sort of a cautionary tale about how the music industry can change overnight. The book also touches on all the auxiliary bands, the Vines, the Hives, Regina Spector, the Killers, mm. Franz Ferdinand even. Uh, some real some real throwbacks, but you got to paint the whole damn picture. I was not a Hives fan. Yuck. I mean, I appreciate or whatever. I just, you know, I just don't enjoy listening. But the Vines are worse, right? Silver chair? I think before we, we really get into this, we should probably situate the listener. Situate? Yeah, you know, an audio history, if you will. I like an audio history. <laughs> the global listenership is multi-generational, and I think it would be irresponsible for us to assume that they're all, you know, mid-30s white dudes. It would be wrong not to share a bit of our personal musical mm. history. I think the listenership deserves uh, a story. Context. A story. Our story. Our history. <laughs> An oral audio history. You know, just as Lizzie's book uh, starts with Jonathan Fireder, uh, we have to take people back to what came before our interest in the uh, New York rock scene. I think it would be interesting to share, like, the, the bad, well, well, the good and bad music we listened to before the Strokes hit. Look, man, I'm ready to reveal all. And not, not that the Strokes were that big of a deal to me or to us or whatever, you know, and, and sure, I am a fan, you know, uh, but, like, the Strokes are, are more of a big deal because of our age. Formative years. Yeah, I was 18 when Is This It came out and, you know, I just decided to move to New York with my band. Uh, which I should note uh, had been your band, but you weren't too keen on moving. I, I wasn't. Uh, you know, I was just getting a handle on Atlanta, and I wasn't wasn't ready for a, a new pond. Uh, plus, the band sucks. Come on, that's not <laughs> wait. True. Let's get this shit straight. Being generous, Spirit World was very good in like a very certain lane. Um, <laughs> But, but, you know, I didn't have the vision for it. And when it was all ramping up, you know, when you were still in Conyers, Georgia, the band was... You were in Conyers, Georgia, too. Let's go, let's... Look, look, that's fine. The band was still bad, though. Like, getting into overwrought, overcomplicated, hardcore territory. And I was, you know, I was phasing out of aggressive music. While I was, you know, still pissed. And you wanted to do a more loud, fast rock and roll thing, whereas I was um, not very rock and roll then. Um, sure. besides my drug intake. Yeah, and after you left the band, you know, we, we really did go in another direction. You were back on your inner redneck, like, Guns N' Roses bullshit, which I, I guess I appreciate. Yeah, I'm a southern man. <laughs> I mean, if that song wasn't a hit, I, I really, really couldn't accept it. That was never really my GNR tune, though. I, I don't care what Guns tune you liked when you were in third grade. I don't think... I, I, go, I don't care. Listeners don't care either. Night Train. That was my tune. Jesus, let me... Hold on, let me find my top hat. Night Train is aesthetically perfect. Like, I, I don't understand how you can't appreciate it. Did Night Train chart? W with the real heads. See? <laughs> See? See? 
Uh, actually, no, that, that song's good. Oh, thank you. And at the same time, I, I appreciate your position on the matter. Look at us. I'm so proud of us, man. Such musical diplomacy. Well, we've opened our hearts a lot since then. You could say we were more musical isolationists. Well put, well put. In those years. You know, the music you liked was so tightly bound to identity in the 90s. Life or death, man. And maybe back then I thought the strokes were like too off-brand. You know, because they weren't like an authentic sort of... I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, part of their sophistication was about how composed they were. They were very put together, like like a little too aware, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. So total package. Like, I mean, they weren't like punk. Right, right, yeah. Um, playing rock band. Like, not playing house, but you, you know what I mean. They they were sellout rock stars and all of that fun bullshit, <laughs> you know, 100%. I know what you mean, but that that's when that stopped mattering. And, and for the record, I'm glad we let go of that misery. New York has a way of, you know, graduating you to a more big ticket misery. So I understand you want to get into the, the music we identified with growing up, you know, because, you know, for anyone that matters, that's like how you sort them out, right? I, I mean, it's just going to be pretty revealing, pretty honest. Like I said, Jay, I'm ready to reveal all, or at least spend a few minutes talking over clips of late 90s hardcore. Hardcore, <laughs> as well as more evergreen records that, that mattered to us uh, when we were teenagers, deeply committed to the cause. The cause, we're just doing it for the cause. Seriously, we should, we got to edit that out. Edit point? Edit point. <laughs> thank all right. You, thank you. So how far should we go back um, in our oral audio spoken word history leading up to The Strokes' exciting, compulsively listenable debut? Compulsively listenable? Is This It, released October 2001 on RCA Records. Mm -hmm. Should we go back five years? 95? Well, five years would be 96. You know, now you have me wondering, when was Punk and Drublick released? That's where you want to start? That's where everyone starts. I don't think that's true, but... um, Punk and Drublick was 94, All I right, think. All right, look, look, just give me a little. Just a little. Give, just a couple bars. You know, anything off Drublick. Your choice. Your uh, choice. Hmm. I'm curious what you'll choose, but choose one I like. <laughs> oh, I mean, the uh, the no effects drum beat is, is something special, I think. I mean, it's changed the game. <laughs> you edit me out picking up my chair and breaking it because I got so excited when that song came up. <laughs> Uh, the drum sound, sure, man. That, that, you know, because that's what no effects is about, really, the sound. You know, that, that's like what they're known <laughs> they for. They kind of are. I mean, they were the first to sound like... Bad? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I thought there was some precursor to that, but maybe you're right. You're the expert here, I guess. Uh, well, what did we listen to in 1995? One record from 95 that I listened to compulsively then. Mm, a compulsively listenable record? And one that remains in the rotation today um, would be Fugazi's Red Medicine. A classic. I know that you love that drum sound. No question. I mean, seriously, but, but just li- listen. Like, I'm in the room with them. A powerful rock band in a room, and you're just kind of right in the middle of it. I love that. I love you're that not going to get any arguments from me. You know, I'm a fan, too. But I think in 95, you were probably like a little more partial to maybe something a little more heavy as hell. Maybe a, like a chokehold. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's educate these fucking fools. So heavy. I'm laughing because it's so good. I'm not laughing because there's, there's nothing funny about this. Oh, this is very serious. Think about aggressive, chubby Chris right now, just flailing his arms around to some Canadian straight edge legends. Oh, 
Right. Well, 1996. And this is another one that hits close enough for me. Texas is the reason. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely classic, mate. A lot of people like Texas is the reason that you wouldn't expect. It, it had a reach. It did. I mean, I think it's like, you know, just a little bit more punk than like Goo Goo Dolls, it's, you know? Yeah, and it's, it's pretty cool. palatable. It's cool. It's, it's pretty cool. palatable. It's not that edgy. I, I guess I would take it over the Goose. You know, Resnick, well, he had a drug problem. Didn't have a hair problem. Though. Yeah, I mean, his hair doesn't give us much. I'd be hiding behind that hair as well. I'd sure. be hiding behind that fucking fat bass player. <laughs> Who's that in the shadows? The damn monster Don't they I... put in the shadows. That man's never had a face in a music video in a fucking career. He's filthy rich, so I don't feel that bad for him. I bet he writes all the songs. <laughs> That's my guess. 97. That was that was the big year. I've uh, I put some selections together for you. Please cue it up. Here are a couple records, uh, so some more aggressive records hmm. that we had a real connection with as teenagers. Because I really think that tells the story, yeah. you know. And um, these aren't the deep cuts. Like we, you know, we got to cast the the net wide for the hmm. listenership. But anyway, let's let's see if you recognize this straight away, or if you need a second. Is this the Twilight Zone theme song? <laughs> no, I know this. Fucking Snapcase, bro! No, ah. Heavy as Listen hell. Listen to that guitar part. Listen to that drum sound, it bro. It sounds like bees buzzing in my ears. It's like, it's giving me vertigo. Oh my God. All right, All right so that does not hold up. Now, here's another record from 97. One I think you'll agree does hold up. Uh, even though it was too dumb uh, dumb for me to properly appreciate it at the time. Oh, yeah, okay. No, no, no. Hell yeah. This is Hatebreed. Oh, damn. Listen to that. This is... <laughs> I, just, I, just pulled, I just pulled out a fucking hammer and just hit the table every time the fucking mosh part comes in. This is, this is dumb. Still better than Snapcase, though. Some random trivia for you, though. Um, the same producer did both of those records, Snapcase and Hatebreed. Uh, same producer, same year, Steve Evitz. Do you know where he's at? I like to shake his hand. <laughs> But, you know, in that era, people had, you know, studio secrets and you couldn't YouTube just how to sound heavy as hell. That wasn't an option. If you figured out how to make drums sound super punishing, you're just in a different league. There is no way to sound this good without going to the studio gods. For sure. You hate getting to space without working at NASA. So 1998 was the year of refused. I remember you quite baffled by how they like created that whole record for a hardcore band to sound like that like so sophisticated i mean like sure nation of ulysses will do that to you but also to sound that good it was just hard to figure out how that was possible for our younger listeners i should explain before records were all done on computers you had to go to a studio you had to work with someone highly skilled that also had good taste you had to pay that person had to pay the studio you had to do the whole thing yes Records either sounded good and sounded expensive or it was DIY and shitty. So for Refuse to release a blockbuster like Shape of Punk Comics. By the way, it was on the heels of their first record that was terrible. I mean, I like a terrible hardcore record as much as anyone, but I'm just saying that there's nothing at all remarkable about Refuse's first record and the production was bad. So Shape of Punk was, yeah, it was baffling. I figured it had something to do with socialism, maybe. like. <laughs> Maybe the Library of Congress of Sweden sponsors hardcore bands. It always did seem a bit unfair. <laughs> 
98, though, is, I believe, when we discovered um, at the drive-in. In Casino Out, that record had come out. Yes, yes, um, I remember it. That's also when I became aware of Alex Newport, the producer on that record. Oh, I remember seeing them at the Echo Lounge, RIP, East Atlanta, classic venue. Yeah. Very high energy. Lots of extreme and exciting stage movements. Very high energy. Nineteen ninety nine. Uh, what do we got? Like, what do we got? Built a spill. Keep it like a secret. What's the song though? Man, I can't even remember. I love it. I'll sing it. Just put it on. Warner Brothers Records. This was like more college vibes. Even though I didn't go to college, I appreciated the music that charted on CMJ. Said everything's gonna be alright. You were wrong when you said. It goes into a similar to that oh, Southgate's yeah. guitar part. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure both parties would hate to hear that comparison, but so the year 2000, we're getting we're getting close. This is the millennium, baby. This is a big year. Remember when the internet? Remember when the shit was all supposed to shut down? Yeah, like my bank's gonna just this, stop working. The world's gonna motherfucking end because someone couldn't program four digits instead of two. I, you it's know a what? Scary I, know I knew enough about computers to oh, know like that go. shit wasn't even go. gonna this matter. This fucking guy, Molly, did scare me. I had the fucking Wi-Fi popping. Yeah. Shit, I had a router. Year two thousand for me. Again, I got to go back and say, at the drive-in with their major label debut, debut relationship of command. This band, I don't, dude, I like liked this at the time. You did. I don't, no, no, it's it's complicated. I know, it's when like jammed up the real heads, you know. I don't remember how much I liked it. Probably not that much. I think I liked it. I think other people liked it more. They did. I did. Who was like the crazy, I feel like somebody was really about it. I was definitely about it. You were about it. Our band was, you know, in that lane. As we've covered, you know, my tastes at the time were a little more simple, you know? So I think I like liked this, but it was pretty extreme. You know, it's all over the place. It's like hard to listen to sometimes. Sure, sure. I mean, it runs hot. Now, this record was sort of controversial as the band was paired up with a blockbuster producer. Ross Robinson. Oh, instead of your guy? Earlier, I'd mentioned Alex Newport, who did In Casino Out. And I'll talk about him more in a second. But Ross Robinson, he was a big ticket producer, a real hit maker. But the, like, the worst hits. So stinky. And I love hits. Bangers. Slappers. Heaters. Yeah, hits a hit. But I do have to draw the line at new metal. <laughs> Just to be clear, I'm, I'm speaking about new metal with an umlaut over the U. And new metal was Ross Robinson's lane, like, before at the drive-in, he did all the classic new metal trash. Like he's very responsible for everything that happened. <laughs> he introduced the world to corn. Yuck. Limp biscuit. <sighs> Slipknot. What can I say, man? It was it was our first culture war. Yeah, a real <laughs> conflict of values. <laughs> so my understanding was that the band ATDI at the drive-in for relationship of command, they'd wanted to go with Alex Newport, the producer they'd built a relationship with. But in this case. The label insisted on Ross Robinson. Classic label. You know, got to have a name producer. Well, fortunately, though, the record was sort of saved and mixing by the god, 
Andy Wallace, but still the record does sound you know, kind of bad. Like, like I'm sure Ross Robinson is a nice, you know, maybe or guy. Or I'm, I just can't imagine working with someone like, you know, I mean, it's the biggest moment of your career and you're working with the guy that invented new metal. Right. Like how could you trust a person like that? And at the drive-in, they weren't from Florida, right? It was Texas. Uh, El Paso, I think. Yeah. Unless you're from Florida. Or or maybe Bakersfield. <laughs> I can't see working with a new metal guy. Same, same. But tell the people about about working with Alex Newport. Well, well, I guess we are getting to that part of the timeline. Let's see, what year is it? Two uh, thousand still. The millennium. Yeah. So year two thousand, banking hasn't collapsed. Computers still work. Cool bands are getting record deals. You and I were we're eighteen years old. We've dropped out of high school because a dead deer was dumped in my driveway. Yes, uh, please refer to episode one for that story. Uh, right. Well, let's let's talk uh, two thousand one. No more fucking around. Yeah. One. <laughs> right. So I went back through the record collection, and here's what I found: April two thousand one. One. BRMC is released. Ooh, absolute classic, mate. So bona fide. Garage Rock Revival. And very New York City sounding, uh, even though Black Rebel Motorcycle Club were from California, I think. It's very confusing with the with the leather jackets. Do you think I should get a leather jacket? No. No? No. Cool. So that was a big record. Um, also, that summer I was listening to Super Furry Animals nonstop. I mean, I, I don't like them, but yeah, that yeah. sounds right. I, I do remember that era. Yeah. Well, maybe we edit that out. I only, I only really like that one record. Uh, edit point. <laughs> well, that was the last thing on my list. Uh, well, I, I think we're there. Hell yeah. Yeah. So released in September 2001 is Ryan Adams. <laughs> Gold. Are you an Ethan John's fan? Uh, You know, I don't know much about record producers. I don't make that my business, but this record does sound incredible. Very strong. It's in that guy's blood, you know. I want to tell you something that I should have long ago. What makes it sound like that? It's a very strong room sound. Oh, of course. I thought so. I thought so. (laughs) Um, But, you know, such a great record. And I, I know... You personally are not a fan of the cover. Ryan Adams looking like a nerd in front of an upside-down American flag. Come on, man. You know what I mean? Uh, Look, I'm not a flag guy either, but, yeah, this was pre-9-11, so you got to cut him some slack. Actually, it was uh, just post. Gold was released right after. Sure, sure, that's right. Like, like weeks after 9-11. And I remember that from the book, actually. And then a few weeks after that... Are we finally there? Is this it? Yes. The Strokes' compulsively listenable debut, Is This It, was released... September 25th, 2001, at least according to allmusic.com. The Bible. And this I remember well. I was uh, I was intensely aware as my band, formerly your band, had decided that had decided that fall to move from Conyers, Georgia to New York City. Yeah, a place no one in the band had ever visited actually. Right? What a bunch of fucking idiots. <laughs> Our band, Spirit World, had decided to move that fall, saved our money, and finally got here the following spring. You know, we got a uh, just like a shitty apartment in Bushwick, you know, back when... Hard to imagine, but Bushwick was actually shittier than it is today, back then. We were playing tons of shows, going to shows, uh, meeting people, working at bars. Kate's joint, man, RIP. We were basically doing all the things described in Lizzie's book. 
like you're sort of in the shadow of the strokes. Like everyone's talking about them, comparing you to them, comparing every band to them. And you're trying to ride this NYC rock band wave, you know? Walk me through it. Where were you guys? Where were you guys playing back then? Give me a roll call. Played Lux with two X's. Lux. I, re- I remember Lux. Quite a bit um, <laughs> in Williamsburg. Arlene's Grocery, Lit Lounge, uh, weird places in meatpacking that don't even exist anymore. Pianos after it opened. I hate pianos, by the way. Loads of weird Brooklyn spots. Like I can't remember them all. And and how did you guys end up with your uh, very minor RCA deal? <laughs> very minor, yeah. <laughs> Essentially, my first New York City friend, um, Teeter Sperber, wrote a review of our little demo, like you know the one that uh, we did in Conyers right, right before moving. <laughs> a very strong demo. Yeah. I mean, it's completely unlistenable now. But it was, you know, it's pretty good, yeah. you know, at the time. Pretty yeah, good. yeah, that one. My friend Teeter wrote a very kind review in Vice Magazine. I believe it had the line, the, the sound, sound of hot garbage in that yeah. review. <laughs> Those powerful words led to us getting a little demo deal with RCA. Which, in fact, is the same label the Strokes were on. Yes. Which I point out because I remember being very, very interested in that whole story because you guys were a couple years ahead of, of Cartel. The band you managed. Yeah, you know, I was still in Atlanta managing a pop-punk band, uh, trying to get them signed. Uh, while you're up in New York City talking to RCA, it was, it was pretty crazy to me. Me too. Wild. So look, remind me how the deal worked. Well, it was really just that they offered to pay for us to go into a, you know, a studio, like a fancy studio, provided that we work with a name producer. And they'd get that classic first right of refusal, I'm sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, they gave us this money, like we recorded, we owned the recording. But they just got to listen to it first, take us to dinner, hang out with us and all that stuff. Someday. But I'm still, it was at least a 50 page contract. Yeah, of course. But that was my first fancy contract. So, you know, it's exciting. Sure, sure. Anyway, yeah, we had to work with a name producer and we wanted Alex Newport. Like, we were fans and I'd met his manager and felt like, you know, maybe he'd do it. And, uh, and he did. Was he in New York? No, actually, I think he was, uh, I think he was living in LA at the time. Um, he's an English guy, yeah, by the bruv. way. Yeah, bro. Uh, that's the accent you want in the stewed. You know, you're doing takes with a yeah. salty English road dog on the talkback. It's a bit shit, mate. Yeah, he um, he flew in, I think, from L.A. to do our little record. So so when this is all happening and you're 20 years old or whatever, you're in the studio with Alex Newport, RCA is paying for it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, did you think it was going to happen? Like, did you guys really think it was going to happen for the band? Like, this was it? You know, I, I I just wasn't that sure. And I was unreasonably confident back then. Oh, oh I remember. But, but I just didn't feel like this. it was quite right. Like, the only truly special person in the band was the guitar player, you know. Hey, bud. Hey. And that's just not enough, you know. You're special. Oh, thank you. But, you, but you, you're just a drummer. <laughs> uh, like, no one cares about a drummer unless it's one of those bands where, where people care. And those bands are usually bad. No one likes Rush. I've never met anyone that's even heard of Rush. Me either. It's like, who played drums in Oasis? No one knows. Doesn't matter. Well, well, Zach Starkey played on that one record, but I don't think it counts. His dad's a Beatle. You know? Exactly, exactly. You know what? The fact that you understand this fundamental truth about drummers, it probably makes you a good drummer. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, like maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe one of the best drummers I've ever met. Yeah, totally. I mean, like if I could sing, though, that's what I would be doing. Same, same. Like you wouldn't even know me because I would be singing. Same, same, same. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, that's the story. I mean, that's the uh, 
oral audio spoken word history. That's a bit of what was going on in my life back in the early 2000s. In the early aughts New York rock scene, which actually is the focus of our guest Lizzie's book. Speaking of, I think it's yeah, it's probably time, right? Yeah, yes, it is. Time to get to our conversation with Lizzie. Lizzie Goodman. At least after uh, after a song. Uh, did you think of a good song for the transition? Yeah, I did not. Um, you want something clever, and yeah. I'm not, you know, like we just played No Effects and Hatebreed a few minutes back. <laughs> I, I don't think it matters what we choose. I couldn't think of anything uh, perfect either. I want something that... You know, sets a tone, but like, you know, but you want it to be cool. Yeah. And I don't know about having some song from the book or, or a band from the book. It just feels a little forced to me. You kind of just want a good song. Right. Exactly. Have you ever listened to 2005's <laughs> Chaos and Creation in the Backyard by uh, <laughs> Sir Paul McCartney? No, not really. It's been on my mind. You know, a heavy rotation. Yeah. Heavy rotation. I, I guess because uh, we keep talking about perfect records lately. You know, for an album-oriented guy like me, it's, you know, it's kind of a sweet spot. Um, <laughs> Chaos and Creation was uh, a kind of comeback album for Paul. Like it was actually a good record. Well, you know, there'd been some like Paul duds in the nineties. Yeah. Some stinkers, some swings and some misses. I've been listening to chaos and creation though, because of a little anecdote in Lizzie's book. Oh, it's not, it's not about Paul or this record. Actually. It's, it's like, it's more about the strokes and the producer of that Paul McCartney record. The story is about producer Nigel Godrich. Oh, the Radiohead dude. Yeah, he's uh, very good at making things uh, sound good, you know. You know, some people have the touch. And by 2005, everyone knew Godrich had the touch. Uh, that's 10 years after OK Computer. And Kid A sounded fucking crazy. And one might think that's all really, you know, Radiohead's touch. But then you hear everything else in the catalog. Like what? Oh, he uh, he actually did Sea Change. Ooh, classic. I was just nodding politely when you were fucking rambling about Radiohead. But now we're talking big talk. I, I, I know how to situate a story for Chris Black. When, when was Sea Change? I mean, it was around when I moved here. 2001, two. Maybe three, maybe three. Uh, I gotta, I gotta pull this up. Like, hold on. Look at, look at man's with the real research. Let me just consult uh, Lizzie's extensive index. Uh, three eighty six. <laughs> oh, I remember this chapter now. I absolutely thought of you when I saw the chapter titled, and I quote. A hi-hat is like working with a seller of exotic wines. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. You yeah. and Julian Casablanca are the only people I'm aware of that say or think such f wild thoughts. But that is true. And I, you know, I think. No, 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 no. You're talking about a fucking hi-hat, a piece of metal that you hit with a stick. You hit it with a stick. <laughs> Look, you would know the difference. Yeah, no, I, of course, because I have discerning tastes and, and can hear the difference between, you know, good and bad hi-hats. <laughs> but I don't, you know, I don't publicly talk to people about it. So you smell the bouquet, but you don't feel compelled to talk about it. Right, exactly. Well, I do. Um, <laughs> from page 385 of the hardcover edition the strokes manager ryan gentles is talking about how after is this it the band they felt they, they felt like they had to put out another record right away yeah they didn't want to be like a one hit wonder or one record band lizzie's got quotes from people talking about all the pressure the band felt and they're trying to figure out how to do the next record like wondering who's going to produce it which was tough for them because they'd had so much success working with the producer on the first record Gordon Raphael. You know, meaning the guy responsible for the for the sound, yeah. like like another member of the band, but one that you just, you know, you keep locked in the stewed. The record exec at RCA, Steve Ralbovsky, I think it's Ralbovsky, is kicking around ideas with the band and suggests Nigel Godrich to Julian. <laughs> you mean the guy that does Radiohead? Asked Julian Casablancas. <laughs> Which is immediately followed up with a bit from Gordon Raphael talking about how he'd heard that Godridge was, you know, going to get the gig, how he was heartbroken, blah blah blah. 
But then they take it to the stooge. The band goes into the studio with Nigel Godrich and everything goes wrong. Godrich is, you know, an analog kind of guy, probably a little more of a real musician, which I say because, you know, there are bits about the Strokes' guitar teacher, you know, coming to sessions to help Godrich get sounds. My favorite bit is from Gordon Raphael, the first producer. This is the story as he understands it. They're in the studio recording drums with Godrich, and Julian says, I really like your drum sound, but can we work on the hi-hat? Gordon explains, Now I know from working with Julian that for him, a hi-hat is like working with a seller of exotic wines. Do you want that one? Or maybe that one? Smell the bouquet. A hi-hat for him was worthy of days of tweaking. Nigel's curt response quickly ended their working relationship. Julian, a hi-hat is a hi-hat. The next day, Gordon Raphael was being flown in from London to take over. Man, that is fucking great. (laughs) What a legend. What a legend. Like, you just can't make it work, man. I mean, sometimes you say one thing and it's just you're out. That's it. No, I mean, I think this is also like an extremely high pressure situation at the time. There's a lot of pressure on everyone involved to have a follow-up that was as popular. And I think I'm sure tensions were high. I can't even imagine just the idea of like you bring in the superstar producer and then like within a week, you're like, I don't know. Fuck it. You're fired. Dude. I mean, the managers and label people were probably losing their minds. Just like what or what? Why is this happening, guys? Get it together. So with that rock and roll anecdote, let's go to our conversation with Lizzie Goodman, recorded just after she'd wrapped a Reddit AMA for the book. Also, while we're getting going, we'll give them that Paul McCartney tune. Like You, you can just set it up. In the following music bed, uh, as we call it in the biz, you'll be hearing the lead-off track from 2005's uh, Chaos and Creation in the Backyard, a comeback album of sorts from Sir Paul McCartney, produced by Nigel Godrich, demonstrating the sound of missed opportunity. <laughs> For, uh, you know, what should have been a triumphant second album. Ooh, shots fired. What's up? It's Chris Black and my partner here, Jay Ellis. How are you guys? Doing good. How are you? I'm great. Hold on. Let me put my uh, headphones in one sec. Okay. It's a fine line and your decision makes a difference. Get it wrong. you be making a big mistake. You're listening to Public Announcement. I'm James Ellis. And I'm Chris Black. And you rock. Okay. Uh, Can you hear me? Yeah. Do you have your recorder going for us? Um, I do, as of... Okay, cool. We had a little hiccup with that once before, so I wanted to check before we got into it here. Yeah, totally. As someone who spends a lot of time recording people talking, I completely understand and support that. It's the worst ever when you're like, this didn't even happen? Oh my God. How'd the Reddit shit go for you? I think it went well. Like, a bunch of people who do understand Reddit and who are... I don't know, like, good at it or whatever, said that it went fine. I don't know, I felt like such a mom coming in and being like, hi, I don't know, I'll just answer your questions. It was totally weird. To be fair to you, that shit is not for me either. It's a different language, (laughs) like, you have to use it all the time to understand how to use it. Uh, Exactly, I'm not trained up. 
Like, I haven't been to Reddit school. percentage of my time wasting my life on the internet and yet I have not gotten around to using Reddit as one of the tools. We have a lot in common. Whatever, it's fine. It went fine and, and uh, now I have a Reddit account and I'm praying for you over here. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. run through this and just talk about everything. Cool. We edit this like pretty heavily. It's pretty seriously produced. Yay. Wow. Profesh. Best news ever. Actual editors. I love it. Please make me sound smart. No problem. <laughs> I would like to start, and I'm sure you've heard about this a lot this week, but I'm a, I'm a huge Ryan Adams fan. Me too. And I've gotten a lot of shit for that in my life. I don't know if you have. Absolutely. And it's a commitment to be a Ryan Adams fan, and you're sort of signing up for a certain amount of, like, defending of him in your regular life. So, yeah. All I, the time. I feel like I've earned my stripes. So his shit this week on Twitter was it was killing me. I, I love the rock star shit. Uh, I know he'd made a few comments uh, when the the excerpt originally came out, but now, I mean, do do you think he finally sat down and actually read the book? I guess like it, he's not telling me what's going on, so it's not like I know. But I do. I do, it does seem like like something happened. It does seem like something set him off, and there's no way to know what that would have been. But a lot of people have speculated that it was that he actually sat down and took a look at the book, and that makes sense because like mostly what he was responding to in his first rant session right after the excerpt came out was relatively limited to what the excerpt covered. So like yeah if you're sort of like attempting to explore the anatomy of the ryan adams thought process like that seems logical but then again that's a dangerous <laughs> yeah you can't do that with him that's not really possible watching someone like ryan adams react is is such a fun aspect of the book you're you're reading and then wondering what all these folks think you know, like, yeah. like how they feel seeing their words boiled down and it's such a fun internet story. There was so much chatter when the excerpt came out, uh, when the book was released, when Ryan Adams sounded off. So many people sent me the link when the excerpt came out. Yay! Yeah, people knew it was uh, for you. They did, they did. It was really totally surprising to have people responding so dramatically to just the excerpt. I mean, the book wasn't even out for another week and it was sort of like, Oh, like oh. people were sent. I had a couple of people send it to me, not realizing it was an excerpt from my book, which was also funny. Like that was amazing. I was like, yes, that is a good sign. I'm sure you knew the book was good, but, uh, like a, a strong response has to feel nice. You know, I, I got excited because I felt like if people were, stoked on what was revealed there there was more coming like i knew there was more coming sure so it was making me happy plus it's got to be a little nerve-wracking you know you've been working on this forever finally hitting the streets yeah. you only get to make the social media splash once yeah you can't help but want the people to to really appreciate yeah because just wait until the book drops the full text <laughs> uh that that brings to mind one of my questions though for the excerpt that ran in new york magazine 
how involved were you in the process uh, or did you just kind of trust them to run with it? They did the excerpt. So basically, like, I have a relationship with New York Magazine. I write there a lot. And I knew they would be the perfect spot. I wanted them to have the first excerpt. When I sat down with my publicist and first talked about kind of like what would be the fantasy of where this would land in its debut to the world or whatever moment, like that was the one. So you've 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 selected New York Mag as the home, but you know, other than that, like you're you're just in their hands. It's like so it, it was, was a normal a regular journalistic process. Like I didn't have any say in what they ran and I didn't have I didn't cobble together the excerpt. Like the amazing editors at New York magazine did that. Oh, they they did you a service. <laughs> But you, you must be involved in approval, fact checking, something like that, right? They did send it to me like as a sort of courtesy sign off, but it wasn't like they didn't need your approval. I did not have approval. They're running it if they want to run it. I mean, they're just being nice. I understand. They're going to run what they want. But like, it's also it's New York Magazine. And they're I mean, honestly, my response when I saw the excerpt was like, dude, I should have hired them to give me a top edit on the book. Like mm. those, those people know what they're doing. They really know what they're doing. It was- uh, would you have picked the same excerpt? Or, or is there something that you think is even better? No, I mean, I'm happy that I didn't have to make that call. You know, it's kind of like you don't understand your own work. Like, I don't know what the best part of the book is, you know, because I wrote it. And I know it doesn't seem like that in the traditional sense because I, I'm not in it. But like, I'm sort of astonished by this to this day. Like people will say in all these interviews I've been doing, they'll name one quote they can't fully remember who said or whatever. They'll sort of hint at something. And I'm like, oh, that was this person. And it comes in this. Like You can't help but remember. I am surprised by my own level of knowledge about the intricacies of how the book was assembled because I just lived with it for so long. And you sort of think you're going to forget a little bit or you won't remember every last detail, but I totally do. So having to sit down and like have a, 30,000 foot view on what would be the best and most powerful collection of quotes from all of these interweaving narratives would have made me want to kill myself. Like, I'm so glad I did not have to make that decision. I would have sucked at it. Well, I mean, speaking of how you approach a a massive writing project like this, um, an oral history style book, uh, one question is, I mean, why did you choose to leave yourself out of the book? I'm honored that my process would be a subject of anyone's conversation at all, ever. Come on. Um, I mean, part of the fun of a book like this is wondering about the author. The idea to leave yourself out like that had to be on purpose. You know, there was it was very deliberate. And and there was, you know, there were conversations in the editorial process with Harper Collins, with my editor at Harper, who's awesome, Carrie Thornton, about putting, inserting myself into the narrative. I mean, in Please Kill Me, as I'm sure you know, which is like obviously the Bible and the kind of template for this type of book and certainly specifically for this book, Legs McNeil is a character in it. Please Kill Me, which is written by Legs McNeil and Jillian McCain, came out in in like the mid 90s and became the blueprint really for like rock and roll oral histories. But like in that style, you kind of have to figure out like, are you going to be in it? Because I know Legs is in it, but like you have to, that's a decision. Yes, a stylistic decision made from the jump. It's a different hat to wear. So like I could have gotten, my friend Maggie Rogers, who is incidentally now like a giant rock star, which is amazing. But at the uh, time, That reminds me, you know, when I was reading the credits, I, I noticed all the stuff about Maggie and I thought that was just a great little tidbit. 
Isn't that bananas? Uh, yeah. Maggie Rogers is the singer who brought Pharrell to tears, actually. Singer-songwriters are the best to me. Like, I love them. Uh, with her song... <laughs> Alaska that was recorded like at an NYU master class and the video just just went viral. But I've never heard anyone like you before and I've never heard anything that sounds like that. So that that's a drug for me. Thank you. Maggie put out an EP called uh, Now That The Light Is Fading and it's getting like good reviews and she's on a pretty big tour now in the U.S. Anyway, what a what a fun coincidence, though. Coinky dink. Yeah, no, and, and who could plan these things? I mean, so, like, just to say what it is, that Maggie was my intern on this book. So she, and then eventually, basically, like, assistant editor, she read a lot of early drafts. Like, through her college career, she was basically working on this. Cool internship. At a certain point towards the end of the process, she was like, you know, I could interview you for this. Because she and I would talk about, like, how the book was being assembled. And I thought that was one way we considered going where someone else could come in and interview me as if they were the sort of objective curator of the project, which Maggie was basically the only person with enough knowledge of the book to be positioned to do that well. And then we could kind of weave that in. But at the end of the day, I was just like, why? Not like we needed me. And I liked the idea of no authorial voice. And I knew, even though in Please Kill Me, it works really well in part, this is what I was going to say a second ago, in part because there's two authors, like that's a team written book. It's Legs and Jillian. And like, when you know there's two authors, it doesn't feel, it's like those are the collective writers of the book. And then here's Legs weighing in on his side of various stories that appear in the book. I was by myself. So it was like, every time you would see the name Lizzie Goodman in the cast of characters, you would know that it was like, it would look like it was printed in red or something. And I just, I was like, uh-uh. Fair, fair. Not like it's that exciting, but like maybe I'll write a memoir. Mm. I like the book <laughs> opening with your introduction, you know, that you establish how you know a lot of the characters in the book, how you moved to New York City in 1999, et cetera, et cetera. Then as you're reading the rest of the book, you get to, to wonder, like, who is this woman? <laughs> What click was she really in? That's so mm. rad. That makes me so happy. I agree, though, that there's plenty of other ways to tell your side of these stories, like uh, maybe appearing on a podcast. Yeah. Hey. Anyway, I en I enjoyed that mystery. Good. Well, see, that this is what I'm saying. It's like, look, if you put it all in the book, we wouldn't have anything to ask you. And I'm glad that the introduction works that way, because I actually this we have to give props to Carrie as well, my editor, because I was so determined about this perspective that I just laid out that I told her I wouldn't write an introduction and we got in a kind of like battle about it like a, a locking of horns and she was basically like I will not publish this book without an introduction like we have Damn. to have something from you like absolutely not are you allowed to do that and I was like okay and she was totally right so I'm glad that she we had it we had a compromise and I think it worked out for the betterment of the book you know another structural thing that, that I liked is that you lead off with Jonathan Fire yeah uh, a band that, that James and I are familiar with but for the listener <laughs> I should explain, Jonathan Fire Eater was a band from New York via Washington, D.C., who had this kind of legendary front man named Stuart Lupton. Um, they signed a big deal with DreamWorks and released an album that just, you know, didn't resonate with the fans. Not everything works. <laughs> didn't do well. Uh, in fact, it, di it did so poorly that the L.A. Times called them the most hyped young group that no one has ever heard of. 
the other members, uh, Sans Lupton, they went on to form a band you might have heard of called The Walkman. You know, I bet you the attention from the book has to be like a little, uh, little boost for Jonathan Fire Eater. Oh yeah, I would love to see their numbers right now. I bet it's through the fucking roof. Dude, they've, ne- they've never had so many listens on Spotify. I know. I hope that's true. Oh, it's I definitely true. One hundred percent. They have a fucking star in their name. Yeah, it makes the SEO very tough. It's very difficult. But I mean, uh, you know, I, I read it as both a cautionary tale about the music business and about drugs. That kind of set the book up in a lot of ways. Yes. My question is, if that was the intention, was that the idea uh, to open with an almost made it scenario before getting into all of these grand successes? Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, I think I feel really grateful for the fact that Jonathan Fire Eater existed on many levels, but as a journalist telling this story, it's like almost too perfect. That's the ideal structure in a way. I could imagine if you were sort of reverse engineering it and trying to write like a screenplay about like a scene like this, you would, you could imagine some script doctor advising you to construct a character that almost makes it right before and sets the tone for, I mean, exactly what you just said. It's almost too perfect. Uh, but obviously the strokes are a huge part of the book. Um, yeah. and, and the story, I'm sure everyone you interviewed had to feel that way to a degree. Uh, like when you interviewed these bands and asked them about that time, you like, All right, so you were toiling in obscurity, et cetera, et cetera. What changed? And they would all say, grudgingly or otherwise, well, it was really the strokes. And similarly, like with Jonathan Fire Eater, it was like, I sort of thought they served that kind of role, like I said, but I waited, like, it was just so awesome to hear without any prompting, you know, you're interviewing Karen O and she's like talking about going to see bands when she was in high school in New Jersey. And like, what were her favorite bands? And she's like, Oh, John Spencer blues explosion and blonde redhead. And like, Oh my God, there was this band, Jonathan Fire Eater. And they were, and then you'd hear, Paul Banks saying the same thing and sort of unprompted telling you these stories about, in this case, this one artist that was like the one that got away. I bet that was reassuring. That was very cool because it made me feel like my vision for this period of time was syncing up with what other people were telling me. And that's always a good feeling when you're attempting to execute something you promised (laughs) to to deliver in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, the core three bands in the book are The Strokes, The Yeah Yeah Yeahs, and LCD Sound System. Yep. Um, you know, I didn't really care about LCD Sound System, okay. uh, but their story might have ended up being the most entertaining in the book. Right. Um, truly salacious. <laughs> A lot, lots of anger still bubbling. You know what? Yeah. And I honestly felt the same way. I mean, I knew the Yeah Yeah story because I'd interviewed them and they're my favorite band, basically. But LCD Sound System, dude, I was in the same position because I did not they were the only band in this book that I had absolutely no relationship with before I began attempting to like report this out. Like I'd never interviewed them. I went to their final show and I like by that point was sort of into their records, but I I wasn't there first. I didn't care when the first album came, you know, I just wasn't attached to it. Um, oh, so, so you can relate. <laughs> but you don't need to be a super fan or something to enjoy the book or like follow, you know, these storylines like, you know, you're not meant to know about every single band that's being written about in the book. You're supposed to be just kind of behind the scenes or figuring out what really happened, you know? I'm glad that you're feeling that. And I've heard this from readers, too. And it really makes me happy. It, it justifies 
the fucking mammoth amount of labor that went into choosing to do this as oral history, because when you pull it off, you get a sense of the fact that you're telling a hundred stories that are all happening at the same time. So even if you, I, as you did, as I did, even if you live through, like literally live through a particular part of this story, you still get to via the reporting of this for me or via the reading of it for other people, you get to go back and like live it again in a slightly different way. Um, and that was really fun because I didn't know. I didn't know what they were doing. Oh, I know what they were doing. They were doing drugs and going out and like finding themselves just like Hell the yeah. <laughs> I can speak from personal experience. Cocaine is a great way to find yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's the kind of quote that would go in the book. I'm auditioning. Just so you know, I'm auditioning. So <laughs> Yeah, I know. I was like, uh, Okay, cool. Like just let me talk to my agent. We'll figure it out. Yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Offline. We'll discuss. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of wild quotes, we were wondering, uh, you know, because you got all these bigger names to uh, speak on the record. Right. We were wondering. Look, we want to know. You got this shit on tape, right? Hell yes. (laughs) Exactly. Tell us you have clean audio of these people. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's funny because like there were moments early on where I talked to certain managers and stuff who have a a kind of ambition about all of this and saw early on that it could have potential that I was not really capable of seeing even at that point, but would say sort of, are you filming all these? And I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) That, That is basically impossible. It's hard enough to get these people to like agree to sit down with me, but I'm going to bring in a video camera. Like, Oh yeah. Let me just, let me call my DP and my sound guy while I'm at it. Just give me a second. If you get this all on film, you can make a documentary and that could be down the road. And I was like, yo, if this book doesn't kill me, just the writing of it, that's going to be a miracle. We're just going to start with that. So, so were these interviews all done on tape? Uh, did you did you have to use email too? Like there are a couple interviews that were done on email because that's how people wanted it. Or like there definitely are some people who, when I was doing fact checking, basically like after I'd interview them, if I would follow up to say, oh, well, one more thing. So-and-so said this, like, what do you think about that? Or is that true? And I would sort of, they would email me back. And then that's the quote that I would use is like from an email. So not, I'd say probably though, 95% of what you read was said and I have it. I hope it's in a damn fireproof safe. Um, Yeah. I mean, I know (laughs) I could just, I don't know what to do with all of it. There's some, there's some things in, in the works in terms of using that material, but I've got it. It's all there. Yeah. Crazy. I mean, Uh, (laughs) you got to talk to one person and what they say influences the next person. Mm -hmm. You're just, you're going in circles. Is, is that what was happening? All the time. And you just want to die because you just (laughs) never, you're never done. I mean, it was like, I had voices in my head. Like I felt crazy. And I lived in New York for, you know, obviously for all this period of time. And I was living in the city until, two and a half years ago. And basically when it, basically the book forced me out of New York city. Like I couldn't, I could not hold all of these different voices and all of the sort of dancing back and forth that I was doing with that many different layers of sort of conversation and be like in an urban space. Like I basically had to move to a cabin in the woods by myself from which I am now speaking to you. And like, that was like what allowed me to finish the project because it was just, yeah. I mean, I had, I'm, I'm sitting in a room right now in which 
it, I, I've sort of painted over it, but basically there were like little sticky notes all over this room that sort of were following. I would have kind of a, a vertical, mm-hmm. a literal vertical segmentation. Sure. Smart. Not in the web parlance, like an actual vertical um, line of details of facts that I was following up on at any given time about any of the like, mm, 10 to 20 primary storylines. You're up in the woods behaving like Carrie and Homeland trying to see the big picture. You got the cards on the wall. You got string connecting all the criminals. This shit is lit. It would look like someone had just lost their fucking mind. Like it looked like a crazy person was living in here. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know how else you pull together a complicated book like this. How else you going to keep it straight? Like you got to make sure everything makes sense, you know, and stays in order. Yeah. Well, and in film, they have someone called, now I'm going to forget what the name of it is. The the person in filmmaking that like essentially checks that you have coherence in the story because you're shooting everything out of order. Continuity? Um, Script supervisor? Continuity, yes. Welcome to Hollywood. And there's like literally someone in charge of that, like in charge of looking at sort of dailies and checking that that the larger story is actually still getting told. And that in addition to the back and forth, you also have all these timeline things going on. So in addition to the thing you're talking about with like, yeah, you had to hunt everybody down. You were on the chase on the hunt. Yes. I would interview Albert Hammond and then I would interview another member of the strokes. And then I would interview another member of the strokes. And then I would need to follow up about, you would just have to follow up with everyone all the time to get the story straight. And I'm not even talking just about things that sound scandalous. I'm talking like really basic, not even very sexy stuff. Like so-and-so said you wrote the modern age before you wrote, you know, barely legal or so. I I mean, and it's like, no, you know, that's not true. I mean, some of these fussy details seem like overkill, but but I guess you have to do all the homework to make the story flow properly. You just need those beats of things that come in that are each person's as if they're speaking to each other, but can take months to get all of that together. And if you lose one thread, like the whole sweater seems to kind of like unravel. So it was, you know, hard. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine a lot of the subjects in the book being sensitive about the details being just right. Yeah. Like that that puts a lot of pressure on you. Yeah. Um, Because you know, these people, you know, the people in the book, you know, they're going to read it. I know I would. Not Mm -hmm. everyone is such a rock star that they can't be bothered to read a book that they're prominently featured in until, you know, you're back from tour. You know, you're not liking how you were portrayed. (laughs) And then going on a Twitter rant that quickly gets deleted. I can't imagine who you're talking about. Were you worried about how the subjects would feel? I was really paranoid. Partially is just human nature. Like you want people to like you. You don't want people to be mad and whatever. But I care. And I have been told at various points that that's a liability, that I like care what the rock star thinks and the proverbial rock star. I mean, I don't just write about music, but like the subject of my story. Of of course you want them to feel cool, but you know, you're a journalist. You got to do what you got to do. That's the fucking deal. But it's a fine line. It's, it's hard not to care. I have learned at this stage in my career and through much therapy, um, to sort of have both of those things be true at the same time. Like it's like, it's appropriate that I am a human being and care about how people respond to my work. And if someone feels violated by something I've written, especially because that's literally never my intention. Like I don't do take down pieces. I don't really write about people that I'm trying to expose in a negative way. Yeah. Like that's not the point. Like it's, it's, uh, it's journalism. Like your job is to, to, 
capture what you see and to have a point of view about that. And so if I do that to the best of my ability and I exercise empathy and compassion in the practice of that, then I feel like that's the deal and nobody is forced to talk to you and that's the deal. So when this, when this was coming out, like what I was really concerned about, I was concerned that people would be mad and blah, blah, blah. But mostly I was just like, I really want to get this right. Like I really, really, what I want is even if someone's upset, I want, I don't want anyone to be able to say, I didn't say that, or that doesn't, or someone who knows them to say that doesn't sound like them. Like I wanted it to be true. Well, so what did the people in the book think? Like, did you hear from them after they read it? Someone told me recently that Paul Banks from Interpol, who's notoriously, who's a a good friend of mine and a wonderful human being, and also like hates journalists in general and doesn't enjoy talking to them. um, it, It comes across like, someone told me that he, his sense of humor comes across and like his, Paul is very funny and dry and kind of weird in the best way. And I think that gets missed because there's this sort of idea that he's very aloof and kind of stoic and like he is, but he's not. And so that was a huge compliment for the book. Like I want people to see that Paul is, has a kind of like witty, dry sense of humor or like, I've also heard that people, I heard this today in the Reddit thing, like someone was talking about how they had come up to the Strokes guys a bunch of different times in the early years and how nice they were to them and how Fab once bought them all a round of beer and hung out with them after a show in 2001, like as they were touring in Canada and like it was post Is This It and they were super famous or whatever. And he was just like, oh my God, yeah, I'll come out after and buy you guys a round and let's hang out. And he did. And this person was talking about how, you know, the Strokes guys come across in the book as you see that side of them where they were just sort of boys rolling around New York city, like being goofy with each other. And they were friendly and warm and not these sort of like rich assholes that people tend to portray them as. And and that makes me happy too, because those are the sorts of moments where you're like, well, you know, I want people to see the full picture that they're not getting. And if that pisses somebody off, then so be it right? That's journalism. I thought you were very fair. Thank uh, you. And I, I agree with the sentiment about Paul and Interpol. He, he was thoughtful and also super funny. I appreciated that there were a lot of moments where you get, you know, both sides of the story. You know, yeah. You're reading about someone behaving like an asshole, uh, but you get their side of the story and think, oh, well, I guess, you know, they like kind of grew out of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Yes. But what was surprising to me was how much the, the DFA crew hates each other i know and they seem to have fun with it they're just flaming each other uh it's they've been doing it so long it's like a fucking sport totally and they're just trying to outdo <laughs> each other <laughs> it's a bit shit mate <laughs> it's a bit shit mate is such a great takeaway oh my god tim is just such a star i mean i think yeah totally and i'm so glad to hear you say that i think part of the thing with the dfa stuff the tim and james stuff that i think i benefited from or the book benefits from basically is that they have not talk to each other and they still haven't as far as I know. So when I was interviewing Tim and then interviewing James after that was the way it worked at first. And then I would go back to Tim periodically, but basically it was like I interviewed Tim and then I interviewed James and it was very clear as is revealed in the book that basically like after Tim left, however, some people say, you know, disappeared in the middle of the night and snuck away. That's certainly not Tim's perception of what happened, but basically it's agreed upon that he left. He was in New York and then he was not in New York. And like after that happened and they couldn't track him down, I mean, basically there was this sort of like 
time capsule, their, their relationship was sort of like stunted at that moment. Mm, That's a very nice way of putting it. Not stunted, like in a bad way, but sort of like, you know, paused. And so when I came along, it was like, literally when I sat down with James and we started talking about Tim and we talked about other stuff. And then we started talking about Tim. He literally said to me, he was like, I mean, tell me what he said. Like, what did I do wrong? Like, he literally asked me that. I think the story benefits from the freshness of that perspective in a way that is not true for probably any of the other storylines in the book. Like, even the Ryan Adams Stroke stuff or, like, the stuff the stuff that's heavy that we get into in other bands, whether that's Interpol or the Strokes or whomever, there was always, you know those guys have talked to each other. It's not like they were using me to communicate with each other. In this case, like, part of the reason it popped I think that way is because they literally had not spoken. Um, so there was drama for them too. And genuine curiosity for them about what the other had said. That explains a lot. <laughs> so wild. Yeah, I know. It's a bit shit, mate. Tim Goldsworthy. That guy is a P. I love them so much. Those two guys are like gifts from the gods in terms of characters. And they're so smart and so talented. And you're, and they so get the joke, as you say, about like, they take all this very seriously, but they also get, that it's rock and roll and there's like a kind of campness to it and a showmanship to it. And like, we're not at war. Like this is music for God's sake, you know, like be serious about it and also recognize that you're a character in a story, you know? I loved all the DFA stuff. Like that brand had been such a mystery to me back then. I'd moved to New York when I was 19. I was playing in a band. So you know, of course I was, I was following that whole scene, but it was such a new scene to me. Like one Brooklyn band that I'd followed in Atlanta before moving Turing machine, um, had done a record with DFA, which had sounded, uh, well, the production and mixing were like very cool. And of course I'd poured over all the details. Mm. Uh, I'm reading that it was a DFA record. I'm, I'm going to the mysterious DFA website (laughs) when websites were still like weird toys, you know? Yeah. Uh, You're a kid. So you can't help but imagine, like, who are these people? Is this a real label? Is this a real studio? You know what I mean? Like, you're 19. You don't even understand anything at all. So (laughs) the book was fascinating to me because it reveals truths about these things that, you know, were otherwise just legends, you know? I imagine that in your research for the book, you must have felt the same way about certain bands and and stories. Yeah. Anyway, I'm remembering I did have a question in here. Um, I'm wondering... Like, what were the little things that kind of propelled you to complete the project? Because obviously it was a, a big undertaking. It was also incredibly fun. And one of the things that a friend of mine would often say, who's sort of my like writing coach when I was working on this mentally, I mean, he, I would say often when I would like really be despairing is he would be like, I want you to imagine that someone else is writing a competing book right now. Like, how would you feel about that? And like instantly I would be like, I'm going to fucking kill them. <laughs> like, I'm going to go find them and take, you know, it'd be like, like the competitive as hard as it was, it was also like, I was so possessive of it. And so grateful to have been sort of like by virtue of chance and luck and determination found myself in a position where I was going to get to document it. Like I felt really, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I'm sure as a writer, as a journalist, like it must feel good tackling something big like this and applying your skill set. The technique of journalism is at its core, like really basic. You're basically just saying, I am here, I am present, and I am putting like 
curious attention on you. Other person. And the sheer simplicity of that exercise or the power of that exercise is related to its simplicity because we never do that in real life. Right. I, I can appreciate that. Like, I mean, just from doing this show, like we've done episodes with folks uh, we know pretty well. And uh, because of the curious attention that we <laughs> give them, like you can't help but get to know something new about the person. Just asking someone you know really well to describe you know, what 2001 was like for them, you're going to learn something. Like you're going to hear something you wouldn't have necessarily anticipated. You mentioned Yeah, Yeah, Yeah as being one of your favorite bands. I, uh, like when you're interviewing folks you admire like that, like what's something that kind of landed for you? Some of the stuff that Karen says in the book is just like, as a fan, I would hear, I would be working with her transcript just going like, I'm so glad this material is going to be out in the world. Like when she talks about the complexity of being cast as a kind of feminist spokesperson. That's something that I hear from so many women in any form of art, myself included. Like there's such a weird dance that you do in terms of trying to figure out how to like represent for your gender, so to speak, and also like not allow yourself to be pigeonholed as someone who is defined by representing for your gender. And I think that's like a real neat trick that, patriarchy has pulled is essentially making people feel like they are being undermined if they stand up for themselves. You can't just be a rock star. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're Karen O, like by default, you're saddled with all these extra responsibilities. And this has changed a bit somewhat. But if you say out loud, I would never have said out loud, I am a feminist because I would have felt like that would have it kept me from getting to do the work that I wanted to do. And that is a tragedy. And I think Karen talks really beautifully about how she felt about that. And that's something that like, just as a woman and as a fan of Yaya Yaz was really powerful me for me to hear. And that's very cool as a fan for those moments, you sort of feel like an observer of, uh, I felt like my own reader in those moments. Like, wow, that's cool. I didn't know that. I didn't know you felt that way. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. Well, that's good because after years of work, uh, even if even if it did make me want to die many times. <laughs> yeah, because I'm sure in year five, you know, your friends are like, Well, how's the book going? <laughs> so we yeah, haven't seen you in a little while. Like, so uh, I guess the book's going well, right? It was a sort of guess, anyone's <laughs> guess. You're joking about my friends asking about the book in the fifth year, but literally it was like, Will it ever come out? Who knows? Maybe not. Nobody knows, you know? Like it was a mystery. Chris uh, what was the next thing? I would like to talk about drugs, man. I mean, the drug stuff was very interesting to me. Um, it, it seems like a lot of people have calmed down and just, you know, eased into civilian life. Most of these people that were really into the drugs are now either sober or like in, like Karen was never like a super druggy that I know of, but was certainly used alcohol and is very open about her use of alcohol to kind of give birth to the Karen O persona and had a period of time where she really had to step back from that in order to preserve her own health. And like, that's a version of what Paul went through and that's a version of what Albert went through. And that's a very, you know, so I think these people, not all of them are sober now, but most of them are doing a lot less in terms of substance abuse and have some perspective on why they went there in the first place. Well, once again, I feel like this was another area where the book was was very well-rounded. Like, you get the crackpot drug stories, which are always fun. And, and, <laughs> and like, crackpot stories are, like, one of the reasons to do drugs. Um, totally. But those stories are balanced with a sense of how folks well down the rabbit hole 
um, can find their way back. And all the Albert stuff, like in particular, I thought was really powerful. You could just tell he'd worked through it and was, you know, willing to share. Well, and that's right. And so it was like Albert is such a hero to me in that way because he's just so... I mean, I hate this word because it's so Oprah-y, even though respect Oprah, but like he owns everything that happened to him and everything that he did. And he clearly has made a decision that it, that being sort of like vulnerable to use another like Oprah commodified word is the way to go. Like that that's powerful. All right. All right. All right. So, you know, let's let's lighten the mood a little bit. I have some more fun, like lightning round type shit for you now. Um, <laughs> okay. Are you sitting down? Yes. Okay. Uh, so, so what, in your opinion, in your opinion, what is the most overhyped band from this era? <laughs> That's a fun question. No, just kidding. Um, uh, overhyped. I'm not I saying mean, you have to like them or not like them. Just yeah. No, I know what you mean. Um, God, I mean that's really a good question. Well, I would say the Rapture. Yeah. Good call. Good call. That's actually a really good call. Because I, 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 I co-signed that for sure. I think, and again, not because the Rapture weren't awesome, but because House of Jealous Lovers, absolute classic dance floor anthem sure. album. Who knows? Never heard it. <laughs> Never heard it. Don't know the name of it. I think what happened is that they were, you know, because it took so long for Echoes to come out, there was this sense of expectation that was unmeetable, basically, and they like suffered from that. Counterpoint. What's the most underrated, the real sleeper of the era? Yeah, that's more fun. You know, what's the band that you can't believe just didn't make it? I mean, besides Jonathan Fire Eater, which I think is an obvious, obviously I think that because I devoted like <laughs> the whole first section of the book to their rise and fall. Um, so obviously I think Jonathan Fire Eater that's the number one, but of the bands that are in the book, but are like, or of this era, but not like maybe focused on as much. I think the realistics, I mean, I wait, what? I've never fucking even heard of them. The realistics. They were so good. Never heard of them. I'm overeducated in this arena and I've never <laughs> even heard of that band. I'm shocked. Me either. I have no idea who, I have no idea who that is. God damn it. You stumped us. The true expert. who's in the book, who was um, roommates with Ryan Gentles. That band was in the kind of Strokes camp in that they all came out of the Mercury Lab scene and Ryan was Dennis's roommate. Those guys just all knew each other. They were part of the same kind of crew. Same crew, probably went to the same bars. Yeah, yeah, as we're at Mars Bar and Odessa. The Strokes were at 2A, Interpol is at Lit. were amazing. They sounded like a kind of dirtier, looser Elvis Costello. Dennis was an amazing showman, front person, like character. Basically, when I was 19 and I was in college in Philadelphia, 1920, before I even moved to New York City, well before I thought I would be doing journalism, well before anyone gave a fuck about any of these bands. The bands that I would not miss were The Strokes, like my friend Nick's band, and The Realistics. Those were the two bands that meant the world to me. 
So that's my pick. That's my pick. Good pick. Perfect. Good pick. I mean, I, I don't know actually, but I, I <laughs> will check it out. Yeah, get your crack fact-checking team on that stat. For me, and a lot of my friends that were around in those years, your book is this bizarre and really fun <laughs> portal, taking me back to formative years. Yay! I think you documented a very interesting version of New York City, New York City music. Yeah. One might say the last pre-internet rock scene. Yeah. And I've forgotten a lot of things from that time period for, for various reasons. <laughs> so I'm very yeah. happy this book exists. <laughs> It's personal. This is obviously my story too and our era and I know that we lived through something important and beautiful and I just really wanted to capture that. And so when I hear like the kinds of things you guys just said, it just really means a lot. So thank you and um, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time because I, I, when this book came out, I read it quick <laughs> and I was like screaming from the mountaintops about it because I just really enjoyed it. It's, it's like so for me, you know? Thank you. I mean, first of all, thank you both. That's so, for for having me on and for also just the grassroots cheerleading you've been doing. I hope that the conversation, what we put together, you know, helps move some damn units, you know? Thanks, man. All right, thanks again. Again, you guys, this is super fun. Later. Okay, bye. bye. listening to Public Announcement. I'm Chris Black. And I'm James Ellis. This week's episode was produced and mixed by Jim Nicholas. Thanks to Lizzie Goodman for joining us. Uh, her book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, published by Day Street Books, a HarperCollins imprint, mm. uh, is available wherever books are sold. Go cop that. Also, a special thanks to the legendary Sarah LeWitton, a.k.a. Ultra Girl, for making the intro to Lizzie. Much thanks. show and I'll take this drugs. Maybe we do, you know?